0: In the late 1970s, I had the privilege of spending some time with a woman named Dora Kuntz, who at that time was in her late 80s. She was the national president of the Theosophical Society at that point. Dora was Austrian and had a, quite an unusual upbringing in Indonesia. She was taught meditation at a very young age. Her parents didn't mind that she missed a meal now and then if she was outside playing somewhere. But if she missed her meditation period, that wasn't okay with her parents. Fortunately, she didn't rebel against this and grew up to be um, quite a rare being, and still very much a practitioner, a very dedicated practitioner, when I met her in the early 1970s. In being around Dora, one had the experience of being with someone who not only manifested deep wisdom but who was also the embodiment of a tremendous abundance of bright, clear energy and joy. These particular qualities are actually the two things that I remember most about her. Her seemingly tireless energy and her amazingly joyful heart. She would work with us through much of the day and into the evening, instructing and offering her knowledge and her wisdom with a tireless generosity. And then in the evening she would speak to us. And at times during this particular mode of teaching, sometimes what she was about to say or something that she had just said would strike her quite funny. And uh, some, or even some internal experience that we never knew about, never heard about. And she would be delighted and she would start to laugh. And sometimes she would laugh for quite a few minutes. And sometimes she would slap her leg in some joyful expression, some joyful energy that was moving through her. We often didn't know what it was. But the joy was contagious, and so we all laughed also. Dora's energy and delight were very inspiring in those days. Both of these exceptional qualities of hers have obviously continued to stick with me over these many years and continued to be an inspiration in helping me along the way towards this, through this path of liberation. As we've touched these last, this last week and a half, as we've touched into the various factors of enlightenment, starting with the first, mindfulness. We attend carefully, wisely, mindfully to an object that has arisen in one of the four foundations or bases of mindfulness, the body or the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, to the mind objects, to dhammas, to phenomena, to the truths. As our mindfulness becomes steady, we learn to discern the particular and the universal features of an object more and more clearly. And we're more and more able to clearly distinguish between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind with the ever more subtle distinctions that arise in the process of our practice. The second factor of enlightenment, investigation of states, discernment, is developing and deepening. And with this, our interest and effort and energy is inspired and fired up in a more ongoing way. And with this, the third enlightenment factor is aroused effort, energy. As we continue to apply energy to our practice, to this work of mental purification, a spiritual joy blossoms and grows. The fourth factor of enlightenment, joy, delight, happiness, rapture is born. And on it goes. As each subsequent factor arises, those that have already arisen don't disappear. But they remain alongside as an accessory, so to say, with each of the factors developing and maturing in conjunction with each other. Eventually, and inevitably, leading to awakening, leading to enlightenment. This evening we'll explore the fourth and the fifth enlightenment factors, joy and tranquility. As we begin to see, to know how it is more and more clearly and more often, Through mindfulness and investigation, our interest in seeing and knowing sustains and inspires the effort that's needed for practicing. And energy begins to open up. Energy begins to increase and flow more and more freely. And we begin to take or to feel a kind of delight, a gladness joy, rapture, as it's sometimes called, PT in Pali. This factor is often called the happiness factor. It's not a feeling as in pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Spiritual joy is a mental formation, a state of mind, a mental response with a number of components. One aspect of this factor of joy that can closely follow and is related to effort and energy is an enthusiasm, a zest, the mental state of joyful interest and delight and the effort put forth in our practice, issuing from this state of mind. Joy, or rapture as it's sometimes called, is bright and buoyant. There may be the experience of a certain kind of physical and mental transformation. balance with when this enlightenment factor is present in us. We may in these moments feel refreshed, unbound, healed. I sometimes think of it and experience it as a lightness of being. Experientially this enlightenment factor can circulate through our body and mind like a river, like waves. There may be sensations and mental states of softness, great gentleness, smoothness that we come to know. We may experience light or tingles or vibratory sensations in the body. There can be the experiences of a rippling coolness, or simply a very comfortable coolness around the eyes or in the body, or possibly feelings of floating or even flying. We may find ourselves relating to some of these experiences with a subtle kind of fascination or even a more overt attachment at times. It's important to notice our relationship to the experiences of joy, delight, rapture, when they come up in our practice. The subtle attachment of fascination and the more obvious attachment and identification with what feels good can stop up the natural flow of the awakening process if we don't see it. As the Buddha tells us, mindfulness is needed in all instances as a seasoning of salt in all sauces. At certain points along the way of our practice, some of these joyful or rapturous rapturous sensations might become quite strong and may not feel very familiar or even especially comfortable, particularly if we're holding on to some expectations based in what we've heard or what we've experienced up to this point and identified as joy, as rapture. To whatever degree there is resistance or attachment in relationship to our practice, there will be a corresponding degree of suffering. And of course, this translates similarly to the whole of our life. It's the careful and wise attention of mindfulness and investigation that's our greatest protection from anguish and from confusion, our greatest protection from suffering. It's this careful and wise attention that keeps the movement of our practice going towards the direction of liberation. One of the great manifestations of joy in our practice is that we may simply feel quite fantastically comfortable and have no desire to get up from our cushion. Instead, there's a zestful, joyful interest supported by mindfulness investigation and a balanced energy to just simply stay put and keep going In one of Tecknat Hans' poems he speaks about his joy as being like spring so warm it makes the flowers bloom When this factor is in place we feel energetically lightened agile We feel well in whatever phenomena is presenting itself. When the enlightenment factor of joy is established, we truly begin to feel a sense of well-being in the midst of any given experience. Our meditation practice is refreshed with a renewed and renewing energy and inspiration. There's a sense of being imbued with a refreshing lightness of being. As it is with each of the seven enlightenment factors, it's essentially important to frequently give a careful and wise attention to particular aspects of the Dharma and to particular specifics of our own experience in relationship to the teachings, and in relationship to our own practice. This is what nourishes the arising, development, fulfillment, and perfection of the Enlightenment Factor of Joy. There's a close relationship between confidence and joy with the momentary or more sustained insight into and the letting go, the abandonment of greed, the attachment clinging to whatever. With a momentary or more sustained insight into and the letting go of the uh, letting go or the abandonment of the identification with what arises and passes in the breadth of our experience. When we have insight into ill will, insight into what causes harm, and let go. Abandon this momentarily, or for a more sustained length of time. When we experience insight into negligence, lack of attention, or the forgetfulness that's inherent in delusion, and momentarily or for a more sustained length of time, let go abandon it. A great depth of confidence often ensues in the Buddha as the amazing, wise, awakened teacher. A great depth of confidence often arises in the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha and their amazing effectiveness. When this has occurred for me, I've also felt a renewed inspiration in relationship to the invitation to take up the teachings, to learn more, to practice and to experience them them more and more deeply. And a great depth of confidence is born in relationship to the precious importance of the Sangha, in relationship to the Sangha as it's manifested in, this, in its spread throughout the world over these centuries. Confidence in relationship to those who have and are practicing diligently, deeply, truly, right up to the present moment, to our particular spiritual community, wherever that might be, and to this particular spiritual community, right here, right now, confidence in the Sangha. When this confidence arises, the mind and heart experience a great inspiration, enthusiasm, and appreciation connected with the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. With this appreciation, with this gladness, the bliss of joy, the bliss of rapture is born. Joy arises with a reflection on the benefits and the beauty of sila, moral purity. Not a puritanical, rigidly based in fear, based in judgment, but the beauty of living ethically in relationship to all beings, living ethically in relationship to all forms of life. I had a very visceral, experience of this during the retreat that Saida Upandita taught here in the spring of 2003. Every time I would go into the house where Saida was living and where he did his interviews, I would be struck by the purity and the beauty of the energy of sila that literally pervaded the space. And every time this happened, my heart would feel like it was filling up and then it would gently leap for joy. I always looked forward to going into that house. When the states of mind that corrupt the purity of the heart, the purity of the mind, When the various permutations of greed, aversion, and delusion have been in part given up, let go, abandoned, maybe just momentarily, or for a longer period of time, or even permanently, at least in part, a deeper, stronger confidence in the Buddha the Dharma, and the Sangha ensues, and joy is born. When we directly experience, know ourself as partially purified of unwholesome states of mind, when we directly know ourselves as liberated from them, When this is seen, known, gladness is born in us. When gladness is in us, joy, rapture, a happiness is born in us. The Buddha tells us that reflecting on the benefits of generosity in all of its facets within the giving and the receiving, that this nurtures joy, this nurtures delight and happiness. I had a surprising and wonderful experience of this at a particular board meeting of a developing retreat center that I'm involved with. Over a few years of time, We'd spent an enormous amount of our board meeting energy and time trying to figure out strategies for getting funding for the retreat center, which has been somewhat, though um, not terrifically, successful. And at this particular meeting, someone on the board proposed a very radical scholarship offer to be made, f- and to be made available for whoever might need it. This was for our first scheduled retreat offering. After a relatively short discussion, everyone on the board said yes to making this scholarship offer available. For days after the meeting, emails were flying back and forth between board members, saying what a wonderful board meeting it was. The best board meeting, the best meeting they'd ever been to, someone said. What we were feeling and what we recognized was the great, what, the great joy that there is in giving. At the meeting we let go of what our primary focus had been for a few years trying to get and decided just simply to give it away, as someone said. As nutriment for the arising development, fulfillment, and perfection of joy, the Buddha encourages us to reflect on peace. To spend time cultivating relationships with gentle and refined people. And avoid spending much time with rude, rough people. We're told to listen to and review inspiring and encouraging Dharma discourses. And to make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart, towards the establishment of the enlightenment factor of joy. Some years ago I had an experience at a retreat that I was sitting that was a great inspiration for me and for others that I'd like to share with you. For the last evening's Dharma talk of this particular retreat, we had a special guest, a special guest teacher who was one of the teachers of the Rinpoche who was teaching the retreat. Our guest was Adi Rinpoche, a man in his late 70s or early 80s. And this was his first trip to the United States. Before he arrived, we were given some background information about him, in that he was a very fine artist and that he had been in a Chinese prison camp for 20 years, 15 of which he and two other Lamas were practicing in retreat. This 15-year prison retreat came about because of the kindness of one of the Chinese doctors at the prison who had created the conditions to make this possible for these three men. We were told that Adi Rinpoche was one of the few remaining antique lamas. And so our honored guest came in, came into the meditation hall with his somewhat stiff and bent body. And he was given help climbing up onto his seat and proceeded to give a very, very long and very traditional step-by-step Dharma talk from the Tibetan perspective. Not a particularly scintillating talk, nor was there even a thread of humor in it. But in its own way, it was interesting enough. There was, though, a particularly scintillating aspect of the evening, and it was Adi Rinpoche himself. As he spoke, there was an energy, a lightness, a suppleness, and an incredible delight in his demeanor that came through very clearly. At times it seemed that he was almost bouncing lightly in his seat. Maybe the closest thing to levitation I've ever seen. Just to check myself and the possibility of my projection onto Adi Rinpoche, After the talk, I asked two of my friends who were also attending the retreat if they also noticed these particular qualities. And they confirmed that they had also noticed these same qualities. After the retreat finished, there was a fundraising auction um, where calligraphy and paintings that had been done by Adi Rinpoche were auctioned off. The woman who had requested him to do a few paintings and some calligraphy for the auction told us that she had stayed with him as he worked, all the way through the time that he worked. And she said that the whole while that he was painting, he was visibly filled with a gently bubbling energy, and he was laughing lightly through the whole time that he was painting. Again, another great inspiration for me and for others. This man who bears the fruit of managing to do deep practice for the majority of the 20 years that he spent in prison, which we can be certain was not a comfortable or easy or supportive situation to practice in. Joy makes the mind, the heart, bright, light, pliable and open, and it's very much rooted in our practice along the way of this journey to awakening. We have countless opportunities to know the joy directly through our own practice countless opportunities to take delight in relationship to our practice. The joy of a loving, compassionate heart. The joy of metta and karuna. The joy of living with a growing and deepening ethical relationship to others, to life in general and in relationship to our own body and mind. The joy of living harmlessly, the joy of non-guilt, of non-worry, of non-deceit, the joy of a collected, focused mind, the joy of calm and tranquility, the joy of non-distraction, non-dispersion, delight, Joy in non proliferation of thought, the joy of seeing things clearly, truly, just as they are, which brings the great joy of understanding, the joy of wisdom, the joy of non delusion, non confusion, the joy of peace. This small smile on the face of the Buddha can be a pointer, a reminder, and an inspiration for us of the underlying ground of joy. The inherent joy in the midst of and along with the compassion and wisdom of the awakened mind, the liberated heart. As a factor of enlightenment, we learn to see and know when joy is present in us and when it's absent. We come to see and know how it arises and how its development comes about. And this is from the Dhammapada. Joy. Happiness. Live happily, free from hostility, even among those who hate. Live joyfully, free from misery and affliction, even among those who are afflicted. Live happily free from the trouble of busyness, even among those who are busy. Live joyfully like those who have nothing, feeding on rapture like the shining ones. Winning gives birth to hostility. Losing, one lies down in pain The calmed lie down in peace, having set winning and losing aside. There's no fire like lust, no evil like hatred, no pain like disharmony, no happiness like the happiness of peace. Greed, the primary sickness. Delusion, the primary pain. Knowing this truth, just as it is. Freedom, the primary joy. Health, great good fortune. Contentment, great wealth. Trust, great kinship. Freedom, the greatest happiness. Look within. Taste the nourishment of seclusion, of stillness and calm freed from fear and attachment, refreshed with the sweet joy of the way. How joyful to see the awakened, always happiness in the company of the wise. Endless grief for those who commune with the fool, as traveling in company with an enemy. Joyful is communion with the awakened, as with a gathering of kin, Follow the awakened, the shining ones, the discerning, the learned, dutiful, loving, integral, and wise. They know how to work and forbear. Follow them as the moon follows the path of the stars. In the overall light of practice, the seven factors of enlightenment are developed and established as the antithesis to all forms of ill will, sensual lust, and all forms of greed, sloth and torpor, restlessness, regret and shame, and doubt these states of mind and body being our primary obstacles to progress in developing a clear focus of attention and insight. When we buy, when we blindly take up and identify with the so-called hindrances, they become hindrances they weaken or can erase understanding and block or close the heart, the mind. We can lose the Dharma. On the other hand, the seven factors of enlightenment, each in their own way, and as they work together, are our greatest asset, in leading us along towards understanding and liberation. The Buddha compared the hindrances to corruptions of gold, to trees in the forest that are filled with parasites, and to impurities in water which obscure the reflection of one's face. It's as though they make us blind, We have expressions in English, in fact, such as, poisoned by anger, blinded by desire, lost in grief. The factors of enlightenment, on the other hand, are makers of vision and makers of wisdom and great aids along the path of awakening. The seven factors of enlightenment are grouped into two types. The first grouping are called the activating factors, while the second grouping are what we could call the restraining or cooling or calming factors. We've now connected with and explored all of the activating factors—investigation, discrimination of states, energy effort, and joy. They're called activating because when the mind is dull or sluggish, these are the factors that are to be cultivated. As to use one of the Buddha's many metaphors, as when one feeds a small fire with dry sticks and grass, to make it blaze up. The cooling factors are tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. The mindfulness factor doesn't belong in either category, as it's necessary and useful everywhere. And in relationship to the activating and restraining qualities of the other factors, Mindfulness is what particularly ensures that they're kept in balance. For the rest of our evening's exploration, we'll look into the first of the calming factors, tranquility, the fifth factor of enlightenment. And as I spoke about earlier in the talk, when we directly experience directly know ourselves as partially purified of unwholesome states of mind, when we directly know ourselves as liberated from them, maybe momentarily or for a longer period of time, or even maybe permanently, a depth of confidence arises. The mind, heart, and body, then may experience great inspiration, enthusiasm, and appreciation connected with the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. With this appreciation, gladness, the bliss of joy, of rapture, the happiness factor is born. With this joy, this bliss, and knowing of it without attachment, without identification in that moment, the body begins to become quite tranquil. The subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with deep appreciation, gladness, joy, and rapture are removed. They disappear with the arising calm and quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt, the mind becomes more deeply concentrated. If all this takes place in the light of no grasping, no attachment, in the light of not identifying with each of the various experiences as they unfold. We fully connect with experience, absorb into it with no self, no identification, and stay fully mindful at the same time. Again, mindfulness always being necessary in all facets of our practice. So what is the direct experience of this fifth enlightenment factor? Tranquility. Samatha in Pali. There can be a feeling of composure, smoothness, quietness, gentleness and stillness within the body, within the mind. As this enlightenment factor develops and deepens, we find that without making any special efforts, the various states that have caused consciousness to be disturbed, are quieted down. Disturbances or distress in relationship to feelings of pleasant and unpleasant. The distress that often, accompan- often accompanies perceptions of things, and distress that's related to volitional, intentional thoughts the inclination, the intent to say or do or not say or not do, these are all quieted, tranquilized with the arising of this factor of enlightenment. The movements of the mind, the movements of the heart, towards or away from, are stilled. Mental and physical disturbances are cooled out, inactive, when this factor of tranquility is present in us, when this experience of deep calm is present in us. I'm sure that many of you have felt this, at least for a few moments, if not longer. There's very little, if any, discomfort This place, this experience, is sometimes called the heart of easefulness. The Buddha spoke many times about two things that are conducive to liberating insight, liberating wisdom. This is from the Buddha. Tranquility and insight. If tranquility is developed, what profit does it bring? The mind is developed. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? All lust is abandoned. If insight is developed, what profit does it bring? Wisdom is developed. If wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? All ignorance is abandoned. And so we dance back and forth between the development of tranquility and insight in our practice. The power of tranquility is in its capacity to provide freedom, provide relief momentarily or for a longer period of time from feeling perturbed. Freedom from the agitation caused in the mind and the body in relationship to the hindrances, as I spoke about earlier this evening. And freedom, relief from the agitation that comes from discursive and conceptual thought, as well as relief from the subtleties of agitation related to other states of mind. And probably, needless to say, tranquility is a place that it's very, very easy to get attached to and possibly even confused about. The confusion coming up as, this is it. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way I want it to be, all of the time. As soon as we cling to this factor, as soon as we try to make it ours, make it mine, I want, I am, it's gone. The contraction of clinging, the contraction of I and mine quite immediately shuts down tranquility, shuts down the heart of easefulness. And we're, again, on the road to suffering. We've lost the way on this map. We've mixed in an old, well-used, overused, souring ingredient. What's most important at these times is to give a wise and careful attention. Call up the chief. Mother mindfulness, as quickly as we're able to. Seeing and knowing that there's clinging, that there's identification, that there's a contraction in the heart, in the mind, and maybe also in the body. Seeing and knowing what is, and knowing that tranquility is no longer present in us. Knowing this without any layers of judgment or evaluation. As a friend of mine so aptly says, seeing is relieving. It's been so interesting to me in my own practice when the factor of tranquility blossoms, which of course is very pleasant. If the mind, the heart, can just stop there, not even go to, I like, which is very quickly and pretty inevitably followed with, I want, both of which are subtle contractions. Hard to see, hard to know. If I can be fully present, and at the same time mindfully absorbed in the experience of tranquility, without any self, then that connection, that purity and openness, is what actually allows tranquility to be a factor of enlightenment. It's completely impersonal, it's a beautiful state, and it's not mine, it's not me, it's not who I am. It's simply one of the tools for traversing the map that leads to liberation, one of the ingredients of the recipe for awakening. In the unfolding of the journey, tranquility creates a readiness for traversing the map to the next place, so to say. As we've looked at with each of the factors up to this point, what is the nutriment? What active, what actively nourishes and sustains the heart and the mind towards the arising, the development, fulfillment, and perfection of the enlightenment factor of tranquility? The foremost nutriment for the arising and development of tranquility, as it is for each of the enlightenment factors, and as Miocin and I have both said many times, is giving a careful and wise attention to tranquility itself whenever it's in the body, the heart, and the mind. Recognizing it, acknowledging it, and accepting its presence, seeing and knowing it clearly. In contrast to this not frequently giving a careful and wise attention to tranquility of body and mind is what the Buddha called denourishment. Meaning that this lack of attention is what prevents the unarisen factor of tranquility from arising. And what prevents or blocks the already arisen enlightenment factor of tranquility from developing. It's not about fixating on it or looking for it, but really just very simply noticing it when it's present, with the heart of acceptance, but with no clinging. Very simple, but not always so easy. The other conditions that nourish tranquility are nutritious food, a congenial climate, sitting in a pleasant and at the same time appropriately stable position for our practice, keeping to the middle, as it's sometimes called, meaning making an effort towards neutrality in relationship to phenomena. And an important nutriment for this factor for us in relationship to the way we live our life overall, and in relationship to cultivating it in our practice, is about cultivating spiritual friends. Really so very important. Cultivating friends who are Sustenance, friends who nourish this deep work of awakening. And specifically in relationship to the enlightenment factor of tranquility. To associate with calm people and not spend a lot of time with restless people. To avoid spending time with violent people. And lastly, we're encouraged to make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart, towards the establishment of the enlightenment factor of tranquility. And to know when calm, when tranquility is present in us. To know when it's absent from us. To know how this enlightenment factor comes to arise, and how its development comes about. When the body, heart, and mind are tranquil, the mind is then prepared for deepened concentration. At this point, the mind, the heart, is very strong. Calm, quiet, is for the purpose, we could say, and is the most immediate cause for concentration to arise, which is what Mioshin will be exploring with you in her next Dharma talk. And so here we sit in this place of seclusion, comfort, and beauty, where our journey towards liberation is deeply respected and fully supported. Here we sit, in this place, where all requisites are given, given in order for us to be able to traverse the map that was offered with such great compassion by the Buddha, directly out of his own experience. The Buddha tells us that along the way of our practice, the function of the enlightenment factors, as they begin to develop and grow, is as a preparation for the direct unfolding of the stages of insight when these factors are actively eliminating afflictive states of mind, thus very clearly then leading us towards awakening. He spoke about the enlightenment factors at this stage of practice as being vast, exalted, measureless, without ill-will. And describe the enlightenment factors as enabling a bhikkhu, enabling a yogi to abandon craving, and to penetrate and sunder this mass of greed, hatred, and delusion not penetrated before. When this happens, when one has broken through to the Dharma, as it said. The enlightenment factors become one's absolute, inalienable possessions. And the yogi who has acquired them has obtained the path. Obtained the path that without fail leads to liberation. To whatever degree at this point we have confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and in ourselves in relationship to walking this path, traversing this map, we've somehow stepped onto the road. We're going along, taking it step by step by step. Just as it all began and then unfolded for Siddhartha Gautama throughout his life, it began at one point in its own way for each of us and will continue to unfold in its own way within each of us. The map is ours to learn and traverse carefully, wisely, patiently, and with an open heart. And I'd like to close the talk with a poem. The poem is called Hokusai Says. Some of you may know Hokusai was the Japanese painter who painted The Big Wave, famous, his most famous painting. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself, as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees, wood is alive, water is alive, everything has its own life, everything lives inside us. He says live with the world inside you. It doesn't matter if you draw or write books, it doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's just sit for a moment. And we'll close the E this part of the evening with the chanting the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.